I use the ESV. The verses will be on the screen. Psalm 132. God's Word says, A song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I uh, shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, But on him his crown will shine. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for this morning that you've given us to come and worship you today. As we sing to you, as we gave, as we read your word, and and as we pray to you together corporately, I pray that you are glorified. And I pray that you'll be glorified in this time too as we look at this psalm, at your word, that you'll lift it up before your people, that you bless your message in spite of the messenger, and that we'll learn more about you and praise you for it. In Christ's name. Amen. Um, the Bible is an amazing book. It is the revelation of God. And so inherently, it is amazing. God teaches us of who He is, of Himself, and His plan for what the world will be in His Word. And that that world will end up in everything be for His glory. Written over 2,000 years by several different authors, and those authors being of several different backgrounds. And in spite of that, telling one coherent story from beginning to end about Christ or about God's plan uh, for the world and for His glory. And we have had the complete revelation, the Old Testament and the New Testament, for about 2,000 years. And those 2,000 years haven't been enough to completely mine the depths of what it has to tell us, of how we can look at it and learn from it. And it really is an amazing miracle of God that we have His Word today that we are reading. And so as we study His Word, there's several different ways of looking at the truths that He's given us. One way we call systematically, where we take a topic and we look at the whole Bible and, and and collate everything the Bible says about that topic, like justification, or about Christ, about Christ's kingliness, about Christ's priestliness. 
And then there's people who look at the Bible literarily. Like this is a, a work of literature. And then some authors that, that God inspired through the Holy Spirit wrote in poetic books. Some of them wrote historical books. Some of them wrote gospels. And the differences between those and why he chose to, to reveal that particular book or passage of Scripture in that way. And you can have PhDs in, in all of these different subjects. But one of my favorite things to look at when I study the scripture is the amazing fact that over 2,000 years, 40 different authors-ish, and all those authors being different, that, that from the beginning and to the end, there's a building story. That you can look at parts of that story in the beginning and see that, that, that God just gives a little bit of light. He opens a little keyhole of light. And then as you go and progress through Revelation, he makes those things bigger and bigger and you see fuller and fuller what he means. It, there's nothing like it. No other subject. If you picked a, a PhD subject, physics or chemistry or med- medicine, and you've got 40 different authors over uh, just say 100 years, there's no way those authors would agree. But the Bible does uh, perfectly. And it really is amazing. And so God does this by using themes and ideas and some things we call types where he he gives us uh, uh, like, for example, Joseph in Genesis. And we look at Joseph's life and then we compare his life to what Christ went through. And we can see that that God did things in Joseph's life to show us what Christ would be like. Joseph is the type and and Christ is what they call the anti-type. And so he does these different things on purpose. I'll give you for an example. Um, the mountains in the, the Bible, that, that God uses mountains throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as a device so that when we look at the mountains in Scripture, uh, we, we should, should say, hey, there's something here. So the Garden of Eden was on a mountain, according to Ezekiel. Uh, Noah's Ark uh, laid to rest on Mount Ararat. Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, on Mount Moriah, where God provided a ram in a thicket and spared Isaac. Moses was given the Ten Commandments on uh, Mount Sinai, and Jerusalem was set uh, on mountains. And, and there is a mountain specifically uh, just east of Jerusalem called Mount Zion, which became to picture uh, God's eternal presence with his people. So the, the connection in mountains, as if you read mountains, it, it should cause your ears to perk up. Hey, God is trying to highlight uh, a truth here, a, a thing. God did this on purpose. He wrote it on purpose. And by the way, hundreds of years between those different revelations about mountains, it really is amazing. You, I'm impressed with it. Can't you tell? Um, and so we look at the, the psalm today. We see a song of praise that's in a certain context in the book of Psalms, but is also in a, a place in the Old Testament. And it's it's bringing together several different stories throughout the Old Testament to, to praise God for. And the psalm is looking towards the future in the New Testament and beyond. And so that's what we're going to look at today, the, the context of the psalm, the, the stories that it's teaching about, and what it has to do with us in 2023 as Christians, New Testament Christians. 
So the Psalms are, weren't haphazardly put together. Somebody just gathered the different songs that the, the Hebrews sang. They were put together on purpose. It has five different books. And there's, a, 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 there's kind of a, a, a growing in those five different books that kind of matches in each one. It's very interesting. You should look into that. Well, this particular psalm is in a section called the Songs of Ascent. And um, the Songs of Ascent were uh, sang by the Hebrews as they would go to worship on the feast days, the different feasts of the, the Hebrew uh, religion. And we don't exactly know what they were ascending. We, we make guesses. There's 15 of the songs of ascent in this part of the Psalms. And there's 15 steps of when you go from the court of women to the court of Israel in the temple. Maybe that's what it's talking about. Or maybe uh, because the elevation of Jerusalem was higher, it was a mountain of God, right? As you go to Jerusalem, you would sing these as you ascend uh, the, the hills going to the city of Jerusalem to worship. But either way, when you were singing this psalm, you had worship on your mind. You were praising God for something that He has done. You were praising God that you were going to the temple where God dwelled, where His presence was. And God promised that He would dwell in His temple, and then you were going to go spend time in the presence of God. But God also promised that He would not dwell eternally on the Temple Mount of Jerusalem, but He would dwell with His people forever through the line of David. And you notice David's name mentioned several times in this psalm. And as we look at the psalm, we can see that God has made promises to us as well as Christians, and that we can sing and worship just like those that went to worship in Jerusalem. And even with that progressive revelation, we see more of the story than they did, and we have a greater understanding, and that what he's teaching us in the psalm, I believe, one of the things is that we all must rely on God to keep his promises. Let's see why I think that's what he's trying to teach us. Look at verses 1 through 5, and we rely on God to keep his promises by remembering David's promise. Verse 1 says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And we start understanding how the psalm encourages us to rely on God and worship Him for keeping His promises to us when we see that David made promises to God. David, the great king of Israel, fought the, the people's enemies with success. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, the first verse tells us that there was peace in the land. The, the, the wars had stopped and wars had ceased. And now David had other things besides being the general of the army to be able to think about. And so in this peacetime, he built himself a, a palace. And it was a palace. It was big. It was made out of the fanciest woods and materials. And it, it was great. He made, uh, well, God made a name for himself, as, uh, for David, as we see. But David's like, man, I'm really making a name for myself. I've got this beautiful house to live in. But one day he was considering his house and how great it was. And then he looked over and saw the tabernacle. It was just a, a temporary tent. 
where, where God had told the, the Jews to, to, to build so that they could store the Ark of the Covenant, and, and the, the Ark of the Covenant and the tent could, uh, could travel with them on their journeys wandering in the wilderness. Well, they had been in, in the land for years, and David had even built himself a house. Well, he, he looked at that tent, and he got convicted. He told Nathan in 2 Samuel uh, 7.2, he said, The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So this really bothered him. So Nathan said, hey, if that's in your heart, go do it. But later that night, God came to the prophet Nathan and told him in verse uh, number five, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God told Nathan, Hey, remind David who's the one building houses. Who's the one that gave you the, 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 the position that you have as king? Who's the one that gave you victory over his enemies so you can have this peace time to even think about building houses? God reminded David, who, who's the one that does the stuff? Who's the one that's really in charge? So then in verse number 12, God makes a promise to David. David made a promise to God that he wasn't able to keep as we'll see. But God made a promise to David, and we call it the Davidic covenant. Verse number 12, 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David had in mind out of his strength and his power to do something for God. God says, no, I'm going to do something for you. Your throne will never leave the kingdom of Israel. And David realizes what had just happened. And he, the next passage, talks about he was full of gratitude. He recognized the truth about who built what and who did what. And so he praised God. Verse 22 of chapter 7, 2 Samuel. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. God later told David that he wouldn't allow him to build the temple. He was too much of a bloody man. He would have David's son Solomon build the temple. And our psalm today speaks that David's desire for the glory of the Lord was, was great, so that the presence of God would have a permanent place to dwell in, with Jerusalem. That is what David's promise was about. And although the 
desire that he had wasn't met in his lifetime, he had faith that it would happen. Look at his response to God's promise. And as we'll see later, it happened in a greater way than David could have even imagined. So let's continue the next section in this psalm by recognizing the ark's place in all of this. Verse number 6, Psalm 132. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We heard it, we found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Ark of the Covenant was a box made out of wood, covered in gold. It was very ornate and very beautiful. And contrary to popular belief, it didn't have any Nazi-killing powers. In fact, unlike the idols of its time or our time, it wasn't made to be a god or to represent a god. What it represented and what it was made for was to represent the dwelling place of God, the presence of God in Israel, the presence of God before the Jews in the wilderness, the presence of God before the Hebrews in battle. It was called his footstool here on earth. It symbolized the unique relationship that God had with Israel as a nation and as a people. And as we said earlier, originally it was housed in a tent uh, that was made to be put up and taken down as the Jews traveled in the wilderness. And this tent had different sections, and, and the ark itself was placed in the innermost section called the Holy of Holies. And only a select priest at select times of the years, the year could go into this Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on top of what the, the top of the ark was called the mercy seat, which was, was shadowed and covered by two big cherubim, cherubim as we say in America. Um, and, and that was where God was to sit on his throne in Israel, the presence of the Lord. So when God told Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant, to build the tabernacle and the different things that had to do with his worship for the Jews, he had very specific instructions about how it was to be done, the dimensions, the material, and everything. And on the ark, there was two ringlets attached to the side where the priests would stick poles through, and the priests, certain priests, were called to carry the ark wherever they went and wherever God told them to go. One day, Israel's big enemy, the Philistines, came and battled with Israel. And uh, they stole the ark, mistaking it for Israel's idol god. They didn't understand the difference. And they brought it back to the land of the Philistines and put it in their big temple they had created for their idol, Dagon. Dagon was a snake-shaped idol. And they woke up early the next morning and found that the, the, the image of their snake god had fallen face first in front of the Ark of the Covenant, like it was bowing before the real God. Well, they set the idol back up and went about with their lives, but God struck them with tumors, what the King James calls emrods. Um, and everyone in their land got these tumors all over their bodies and, and were in miserable pain. And so they said, we got to get this thing out of here. So they stuck the Ark of the Covenant on a cart carried by two heifers and just 
smacked their bottoms and away they went straight to the direction of Jerusalem, not guided by any person, but guided by the Holy Spirit back to where it belongs. It made its way back to Israel and ended up in a place called Kiriath-Jearim, okay? In this psalm, the same place as Ja'ar. We've heard of it. We found it in Ja'ar. And it stayed there for 20 years in that field. And that field in Ja'ar was blessed by God for those 20 years. But I want you to think about that. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, stayed outside of where it needed to be for 20 years. And for those 20 years, the Jews went on with their lives. And they ate, and they worked, they married, they had children, they battled, had good times, had bad times, and they died, some of them, all without a thought that they were missing the presence of God or the representation of it in the Ark of the Covenant, all without going yearly to the tabernacle for the Day of Atonement. Life continued on without someone saying, hey, something's missing about what we do, 20 years long. But David remembered the ark after winning a battle with the Philistines after those 20 years. And he called for it. He found it in the field of Jaar and called for it to be brought back to Jerusalem. Very interesting story. Bear with me. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baale, Judah, that's Kiriath-Jerim or Jaar, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart, with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. But you remember the specifications for the ark included ringlets that they were to stick poles through, and that a certain select group of priests were, were designed and made to carry um, our call to carry the ark where it would go. But that's not what they did. They stuck it on a cart, just like the Philistines did. And they were bringing it back to Jerusalem. Look what happens next, verse number 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. God is the one who commands how he is to be worshipped. And they took that for granted, and they took lightly of God, and God showed them the reality of who you're dealing with. This isn't some snake-shaped piece of concrete. This is the God creator of all the earth who brought you out of Egypt by his own power and by his strength. And they were all having a good time with the castanets and the lyres and singing, and then he struck Uzzah down. 
And this angers and frightens David, so he stops short of bringing the ark into Jerusalem. But then verse 12 of chapter 6 says, And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So I want you to notice the difference between how they carried it. It says, when those who bore the ark walked six steps, they sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David wore a linen ephod in, in reverence and, and, uh, of his true station, even though he was a king. The psalmist remembers this time when the ark was found in Ja'ar and brought back to the city of David and worships. He worshiped because the resting place, the dwelling place of God, the presence of God was back into the city finally. God was present with his people again. By the way, verse 6 of our psalm also said that they remembered the ark, the symbol of God's presence in Ephrathah. David was born in Ephrathah of Bethlehem, as was his most precious and famous grandson, down his line, our Lord Emmanuel, God with us. So we recognize the ark's place, that the presence of God is important, and and him dwelling with us is very important. And we see how God works that out through the history of the Old Testament and how His presence works out into the New Testament. And we'll see that more and more. But that's how we can learn to rely on God's promises because of how He dealt with His presence in the land of Israel. Thirdly, by relying on the Lord's plan. Verses 11 and 12, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also shall forever sit on your throne. David was not the one that God chose to build his temple, but his son Solomon was. And he did. And it was a wonderful, uh, a wonder of the world at the time. One of the greatest buildings ever uh, at, at that moment in history. God told him exactly how to build it. God even sent the Holy Spirit to bless the craftsmen, the people who worked on it, with their hands and how they built the instruments of the, of the temple and all that stuff, all empowered by the Holy Spirit for how well they worked. And it really was a sight to behold. But the big deal was now there was a permanent place for the dwelling of God, for the presence of the Lord. David wasn't allowed to build it, as we had already said, but it was given a promise instead, the, the Davidic covenant. The promise was made by God to David that his descendants would always be on the throne. Back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And this was the, the last part of all the promises that God made to David that day. 
And so David went to the grave with the knowledge that his son would be on the throne, that his son would build the temple. Then Solomon reigned, and we see about his life in Ecclesiastes and Chronicles and Kings. And Solomon's son, after him, took the throne. His name was Rehoboam, and he was a foolish and stupid king. He lost the kingdom in very short order. The kingdom split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And uh, after years of disobedience, all the kings of Israel and Judah, the sin that they committed, these are some of the most, some of them are some of the most wicked people that you can imagine, um, completely disregarding the covenant that God made with David. If your sons will follow my covenant and keep my laws, they'll stay on the throne. They worshiped idols, even Molech, the God where you threw your baby into the fire in worship of him and all kinds of other crazy and wicked things. After all this, God chastens them as he promised David, and the kingdoms fall, starting with the northern kingdom. And they get exiled and taken as slaves into another country. And finally, Jerusalem itself, the city of David, where God's presence was, uh, was sacked and destroyed, including the, the temple. There's no one to sit on the throne anymore because there is no throne. It's been destroyed. So what of God's covenant with David? God's word will not be questioned at all. We may not be able to see the whole picture, but it will never turn void. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 is where God answers this question through his prophet. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is talking about the fallen Judah. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This baby boy born in the future will be God's answer to his covenant. He will be the one anointed as king over Israel. And he will be the one anointed as priest and as prophet over Israel. He will be the anointed one or the Messiah of Israel and will rule forever on the throne of David and over his kingdom. He will keep the covenant where David's sons failed to keep the covenant. The word of the Lord in his sure oath, as the psalmist says, will not come back void. His promise can be relied on forever. To believer, take heart. Because we serve a God who makes promises and keeps them. Because He is true and because He has the power to keep them. 
He works out through the tapestry of time and of circumstances in all of our lives, in our ancestors' lives, in every life and circumstance from the eternity past to eternity present to do whatever he wants for his purposes like a master weaver. Every single word in his revelation will come to pass. And we stake everything on this truth. David's line fell short of keeping their end of the covenant, but God didn't and will never fall short. Praise the Lord. So when we're going through those times, like we're talking about in Sunday school, those trials and those tribulation, the pain, remember that look through those pain unto the throne of David, who right now our Emmanuel is sitting on, ruling, fulfilling the promise and the covenant of God. Rely on God's plan, and He will not let you down. And finally, in verses 13 through 18, we can rely on the promise of God by resting in Zion's provision. Verse 13, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This last part of the psalm of worship, the song of ascents, we see how God provides for his people in Zion. Mount Zion, mountain ears perk up, highlighted, was a hill on the east side of Jerusalem, but it became a name for the place where God was and where God ruled. Sometimes they call the Temple Mount Mount Zion. Sometimes they call all of Jerusalem Mount Zion. All the time, it's where God is present and in charge. And as we said earlier, the ark represented the presence of God in a place. But there would be a time when the ark would be no more. The physical ark, no one really knows what happened to it. We don't know if it was destroyed or stolen and destroyed later. But it most certainly is not hidden away in a snake pit in Egypt. But we do know that it was a temporary thing used by God, a physical representation of his presence on earth. Jeremiah 3.14 says one day, The ark would no longer be needed. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, The ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. They shall no more stubbornly, sorry, cut off here, follow their own evil heart. And does that sound like a familiar time where he gives under shepherds to give you understanding? That sounds like right now we don't go to a place with a physical object to be in the presence of the Lord. Right now, as New Testament believers, with that fuller revelation of the New Testament, we have the presence of God in our very midst. 
right now in our hearts. We can just pray as a, as a believer priest to the Lord and our mediator, the one sitting on the throne of David, will bring our prayers to God the Father by his work and by his person. It is a great time to be where we don't have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to be in the presence of the Lord. We come daily into his presence boldly, as the Bible says, because of Christ. From the very beginning, God has been working out his plan to dwell with his people. Adam and Eve, as we saw this morning in Sunday school, messed that up. Uh, But that his plan wasn't thwarted when they committed the first sin. And through the centuries of the Old Testament times, he worked through figures and prophecies and promises. And he had them written down in a book for us to to study, to cross-reference against the life of his Messiah and see all those promises fulfilled in Christ himself. And that Christ would bring the completeness of his plan to fruition at some time in the future. And finally, at the end of all of it, we will all, as God's people, dwell in his presence forever, face to face, uh, in eternity future. Now look at the final promises here at the end of our psalm that the psalmist worships worships God for. I will abundantly bless her provisions, verse 15. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There will be no want when God dwells with his people. Verse 9 of our our passage asks and prays to God, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. So God answers in this, this psalm, this part of our psalm, that the priests will not only be clothed with righteousness, they'll be clothed with salvation, completely clothed with perfect righteousness. And the saints will shout for joy in that day, like David worshipped when the ark, the presence of God, returned to Jerusalem. Then verse 17 of our passage says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Here, God makes a horn sprout for David. A horn represents strength. Uh, the strength of a king in battle and in ruling his kingdom. And the anointed one will have a lamp prepared for it by God, a light to see in the darkness. And every proud enemy of God will bow the knee before the Lord of all. Isaiah forty-five twenty-three. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance." God will provide in Zion for every believer every single thing that he has promised through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in this provision, everyone who bends the knee in saving faith and biblical repentance will rejoice and sing as we ascend the mountain of the Lord, as these Hebrews did, worshiping God in their day. They went to Mount Zion to worship his presence at the Ark of the Covenant inside the the temple, singing these songs of ascent. And so today we also sing songs of praise and worship because we have been offered promises of God and we know that he is a faithful God who keeps his promises even when sinful men like ourselves can't keep their, their end. Sending a son of David to rule 
uh, over Zion forever, keeping his promises just like this one in Isaiah 55, verse number one. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And he keeps them through his son Jesus, as we have said. Look all the way in the book of Revelation, at the very end Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who has seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment." The one who conquers will have this, this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire. His enemies will be clothed with shame, and his crown will shine forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for this wonderful day you've given us. We thank you for these promises that you've given us in your word from beginning to end. How we can see through miracles and through circumstances and through your providence and sovereignty, how you work them out. And I pray that our trust and our faith in you would be increased because of your word today. Thank you for Christ. Bless us. In Christ's name, amen.